Namacharya Srila Haridas Thakur Ki Jai Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Dvaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhaktivinda Ki Jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhan Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Nabhatrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Mai Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tosi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakti Rinda Ki Jai Gaur Primanande Oh, glorious to the assembled devotees. Oh, glorious to the assembled devotees. Oh, glorious to the assembled devotees. Oh, glorious to Sri Guru and Gauranga. Oh, glorious to Sri Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nivasesis and Nivadi Paskatyade Satarane Mande Hum Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Stam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Param Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya September 13th, 2011, Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 12, Birth of Emperor Parikshit, Text 18. I have a I have a little bit of a cold today, and my voice isn't quite what it should be, so I can't talk very loudly, and it may sound a little funny. hope you can excuse me. Sri Raja, the all-good king, Maharaj Yudhisthira, Uvacha, said, Api, weather, Aishaha, this, Vamsyan, family, Raja Rishin, of saintly kings, Punyashlokan, pious by the very name, Mahaatmanaha, all great souls, Anuvartita, follower, Sfit, will it be, Yashasha, by achievements, Saduvadena, by glorification, Satamaha, O great souls, 
Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. The good king Yudhisthira inquired, O great souls, will he become as saintly a king, as pious in his very name, and as famous and glorified in his achievements as others who appeared in this great royal family? So, of course, the context of this is Maharaj Parikit has been born, and Maharaj Yudhisthira is asking the expert astrologers. Uh, let's just look at this translation again and what he's looking at. A saintly king, pious in his very name, famous and glorified in his achievements. And he's using these, oh, these could be very vague terms, but he's using them in relationship to these predecessors. So he's saying, as saintly a king, as pious in his name, as famous and glorified in achievement, as others who have appeared in his great royal family. So he's giving some sort of a reference point. If I say, uh, is this a good person? What do you mean by good? So if I say, well, is he as good of a person as such and such? Then you have some idea what I'm speaking about. Okay, purport. The forefathers of King Yudhisthira were all great saintly kings, pious and glorified by their great achievements. They were all saints on the royal throne, and therefore all the members of the state were happy, pious, well-behaved, prosperous, and spiritually enlightened. What a nice combination, huh? Happy, pious, well-behaved, prosperous, and spiritually enlightened. Under strict guidance of the great souls and spiritual injunctions, such great saintly kings were trained up, and as a result, the kingdom was full of saintly persons and was a happy land of spiritual life. Maharaj Yudhisthira was himself a replica of his ancestors, and he desired that the next king after him become exactly like his great forefathers. He was happy to learn from the learned brahmanas that by astrological calculations the child had been born a first-grade devotee of the Lord. And now he wants to know with confidence whether the child will follow in the footsteps of his great forefathers. That is the way of the monarchical state. The reigning king should be a pious, chivalrous devotee of the Lord and fear personified for the upstarts. He must also leave an heir apparent equally qualified to rule over the innocent citizens. In the modern setup of the democratic states, the people themselves are fallen to the qualities of the shudras or less, and the government is run by a representative of theirs who has not been trained according to the scriptural code of administrative education. Thus the whole atmosphere is surcharged with shudra qualities manifested by lust and avarice. Such administrators quarrel every day among themselves. The cabinet of ministers changes often due to party and group selfishness. Everyone wants to exploit the state resources till he dies. No one retires from political life unless forced to do so. How can such low-grade men do good to the people? The result is corruption, intrigue, and hypocrisy. They should learn from the Srimad Bhagavatam how ideal the administrators must be before they can be given charge of different posts. Sri Rajovacha, Apyesha, Vamsan, Rajarshin, Punya Shloka, Mahatmanaha, Anu Vartita, Svidyashasha, Sadhu Vadena, Satmanaha. The good king Yudhisthira inquired, O great souls, will he become as saintly a king, as pious in his very name, and as famous and glorified in his achievements as others who appeared in this great royal dynasty? There's many times wonderful 
projects, wonderful communities that are highly dependent upon one person. Sociologists call this a cult of personality. They also talk about the charismatic leader. And it is a well-known sociological phenomenon, which Srila Prabhupada also refers to in his purports regarding Acharyas, that after the charismatic personality departs, things become, as Prabhupada says, disordered. So this is true in a spiritual line, and it's true in material organization. When everything is highly dependent upon one qualified person, when that person leaves, things have a tendency to become disordered. Therefore, it is the duty, as Srila Prabhupada speaks here about the kings, they have to provide an heir apparent. He must also leave an heir apparent equally qualified. So this system is very well understood that there has to be some sort of succession. Of course, in modern political arrangements, there is no facility for the ruling person to train a successor, nor is the ruling person himself or herself trained. Or perhaps, I mean, sometimes there's some degree of training. There we have, at least in America, presidents who were trained as lawyers, so they knew the law, some of them who had military training. I mean, we had our Ronald Reagan, whose training was as an actor. But even those who had the military training or the legal training, they haven't really been trained in exceptional principles. And therefore, we, we find in our modern society the sort of difficulty that Srila Prabhupada describes here. Corruption, intrigue, and hypocrisy. People who are interested in running the government just so they can exploit its resources, resources for personal gains. And they're just thinking, all right, how can I pull from the citizens' tax money for my own comfortable life? How can I become a famous, rich, and powerful person at the expense of, this, of the state? And we see this everywhere. We see this, uh, Prabhupada's here specifically speaking about political administration, but we see this in spiritual organizations, we see it in charitable organizations, we see it in business, everywhere, entertainment, that people are not trained. People are not trained and they don't properly train a successor. Now, properly training a successor, choosing the right successor, and properly training a successor are done when one is not exploitive. Prabhupada also talks here about the leaders. They don't want to retire from political life unless forced to do so. Formerly, the political leaders would retire as soon as they had a qualified successor, even if they'd only ruled for a short amount of time. So even if they'd only ruled for five years, ten years, fifteen years, as soon as there was a qualified successor, then they'd say, all right, let me just engage in spiritual life. That was their mood. Because they were doing the administration simply as a service. They weren't doing it for their personal self-aggrandizement. They weren't doing it in order to collect money. They were doing it in service to Krishna. Whatever people were doing in a proper society, 
everyone is doing their service to Krishna. And doing their service to Krishna means that I have to become expert in my service and I have to make sure that I do my utmost to train an expert successor. Now, obviously, it doesn't always work. Just like Maharaj Anga, he tried to train his son Vena, but he failed. Or Jed Bharat's father wasn't able to train his son. Uh, sometimes the great Acharyas, uh, they're not able to have a qualified disciple. And there's breaks. Yada yada hi dharmasya, bhavati bharata, abhutinam adharmasya, tadatmanam srijamyaha. There would never be adharmasya if all of the Brahman, Satriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras were properly trained and were always able to take responsibility to train a proper successor. But at least the attempt has to be there. The attempt has to be there. Just like Vasudev, he tried to save Devaki. He tried to save the life of Devaki from Kamsa and as well to save the lives of his future children. But he couldn't do it. The only way he could save Devaki's life was to promise Kamsa that turn over his children. So Prabhupada says one has to try one's best if one, if in spite of trying one's best, one is not successful, one is not at fault. But at least one must try these things. So let's look a little bit here specifically at the satriyas, at the government leaders. To be a government leader, one must have two main qualifications. First, one must be a very elevated Vaishnava. One must be saintly, a saintly king. You know, there's this joke about Gandhi. Was he a saint among the politicians or a politician among the saints? Oh, people like to think of their government leaders as saintly as a loving father and as a religious person even in our modern secular societies very difficult for somebody to get a political post if they're an atheist everybody wants that the political leader is religious of course they don't want them to be too religious if they're too religious then they become afraid a modern society doesn't like extremes of religion intense religion. They have only pejorative terms. Extremist, fanatical, fundamentalist. They're all negative. They use terms. But they do want to see that their leaders are religious. You know, in India, the leaders are going to do a public puja for Ganesh. In America, they're going to visibly go to church. They're going to invoke something about God, at least in the natural, uh, at least in the natural and man-made catastrophes. You know, we just recently in America had the 10th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Centers. And so President Obama and former President George W. Bush, they get together and they say some psalm from the Bible. So everyone expects that. That's, we don't feel safe if our leader's not religious. But beyond religious, the Ksatriya was a saint. But it's interesting here, Amaraj Yudhisthira says that he, Maharaj Yudhisthira, Prabhupada says rather, that Maharaj Yudhisthira was very happy to learn that Maharaj Purikit was going to be a first-class devotee of the Lord. But he also wanted to know whether he would be a ksatriya by his actions, glorified in his achievements. Chapter Varnya Mayashristam Guna Karma Bibhagashaha. So one is fit for work not just by birth but by qualities and actions. 
And we have some examples in the Shastra, like Maharaj Rishabdev, where his, uh, some of his children were not fit to be Kshatriyas. They were Brahmanas. They were the nine Yogendras. They weren't qualified to rule. We have other instances like that as well. Uh, I think Druva's... I wasn't Druva. Anyway, someone... Uh, the person who was supposed to be the king was Utkala. Uh, and Utkala, he, want, he was just an Avaduta who went to the forest. So in, instead of him becoming king, his brother became king. I forget the exact reference. With uh, Maharaj uh, Shantanu, I believe there was a similar situation. Perhaps it was Dasarath, where the person who was meant to be the king was not interested in being the king, didn't have the qualities of being the king, was a brahmana. And sometimes you might have the firstborn child of the king who's really a Vaishya or Shudra by qualification. Or we had in the case of Duryodhan, who wasn't a devotee of the Lord. So we have some cases where the person who was be the natural heir apparent by birth was a great devotee of the Lord, but not interested in being a kshatriya. And then we have other cases, like Duryodhan, where the person is definitely kshatriya, but not a saintly person. So both things have to be there, and that is ascertained by quality. Otherwise, why are they doing this horoscope? If it's just by birth. I mean, we do find throughout the Shastra that generally, for both men and women, their varna is looked at in terms of birth. We don't find it, it, that many cases where a person's varna is different from that of their family. Although Krishna says guna karma, he never says janma. So why was it often the same as their family? Well, that's true to some extent, even today. They say an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Even today, children are likely to have similar inclinations to their parents. And if the mother and father are of the same nature, then that's even more likely for the children. So if the mother and father are both scientists, it's even more likely the children will be scientists. And I was reading one story about people who died in 9-11, And this one man, for generations, his family had been firefighters. So one of his sons became a firefighter, one of his sons became a police officer. So this is natural. It's to be expected. You know, my husband is, or he does it anymore, but he worked as a computer programmer, and our oldest son is also a computer programmer. Oh, my father, my husband's father and my father both ran businesses. And our other son is running a business. So this is this natural that the children are there. The atmosphere of the home, whether you want to say it's nurture or nature, the atmosphere in the home, the kind of skills that they're likely to use. So often, general principle, especially when marriages were done according to Varna, when a woman and a man of the same nature were married to each other, so it was likely that the children would come out with the same qualities. And they tipped the scales in that favor by performing samskaras. So there are several samskaras. The Garbhadan samskar uh, is, also has the purpose of producing a child like the parents. So we find this in the story of Parashuram. Right? At, at, 
Parashuram's father, Jamadagni, who was a Brahmana, he married a Ksatriya woman, a woman from a Ksatriya family at least. I don't know if she had a Ksatriya nature or a Brahmin nature herself, but anyway, she came from a Ksatriya family. And Jamadagni prepared a payasa so that when she drank it, then after they would uh, cohabit, then she would produce a child who was a Brahmana. But his wife's mother also wanted another child. So her son-in-law prepared a payasa for her as well that would enable her to produce a child who was a But the mother-in-law considered, oh, my son-in-law is going to love his wife more than he loves his mother-in-law, so he's probably given her the better payasa. So she switched them, which meant that her child had Brahminical tendencies and her daughter's child had Ksatriya tendencies. That, of course, was Parasaram. So children were born according to a particular family. Their guna and karma was often the same, almost always the same as their janma, because people married between the same varna, and they had knowledge of subtle scientific principles so that they could produce children who would be likely to carry on their service. That was the, that was the system. And just like if you're going to have a school of art or a school of music, you want to attract people who already have some talent in that area. So parents put a lot of time and energy into training their children, and therefore they wanted to attract the child who would be most inclined to benefit from the specific type of training they were able to offer. Otherwise, if a Brahmin child appears in a Ksatriya family or a Vaishya child in a Ksatriya family, it's a little bit more difficult for that child to get the proper training. So we shouldn't be confused that just because in the Shastra, generally speaking, the Varna is continuing in a family line, that that means that it wasn't according to the guna and karma of the individual. Otherwise, there's no need for Maharaj Yudhisthira to ask these questions or even to do a horoscope. He's not automatically assuming that because Maharaj Pariket is the son of Uttara and Avimanyu, the grandson of Arjuna, that naturally he's going to be a, both a devotee of the Lord and have the nature and the inclination of a Ksatriya and do the achievements of a Ksatriya. So here we see again that the what he's looking for is two things, material and spiritual qualifications. Maharaj Yudhisthira is also not satisfied. Oh, he's just a great devotee. That's enough. In the early days of the Hare Krishna movement, and I think to some extent it is still existing, we had the conception that if one is a solid devotee, that one can do anything. Now it is true that Prabhupada has a purport in the Bhagavad Gita where he says that once one is fully Krishna conscious, he can do anything and everything under the order of the spiritual master. That it is a fact. That once one is above the modes of material nature, because guna karma bivagasa, guna is the modes of nature. So it's true that once one is above the modes of material nature, that it is possible to do anything. But even for such persons, we find, we find that generally they act according to 
their particular nature. For the sadhana siddha devotees, they generally continue to act according to the nature of the modes under which their body was produced, even though they're no longer affected by those modes. For the nitya siddha devotees, they generally accept a particular manifestation for a particular purpose of service. So although they're not coming under the modes of nature, they take this particular body and particular uh, manifest a particular psychology to do a particular job. Sometimes they may be appearing in their eternal form and eternal, um, with their eternal psychology, eternal personality. And other times they may manifest a particular type of personality. Uh, just like if you're going to go do some work, particular kind of work, you put on a particular kind of clothes. So for the sadhana siddha, we're wearing a particular kind of clothes because of our material desires. And generally when the sadhana siddha becomes perfect, because they're already wearing those clothes, they're engaged in the work most suitable for those clothes. Now, just like if you want to work in the garden, you're probably going to put on a pair of blue jeans. So we want to work in a particular way, therefore we get a particular psychology and particular body. And it's kind of stuck, you know, it's not like in this life you can easily take off the blue jeans and put on, you know, a tuxedo. So even when one becomes perfect because they're still wearing the blue jeans or the tuxedo, so they're being going to, Krishna's going to most likely engage them accordingly. And for the Nichasiddhas, they come with a mission, and so naturally they accept a particular uniform that suits that mission. So we find that even among the pure devotees, they don't generally act in a way that's very different to their uh, physical body and their psychology. Uh, that's very unusual, a very unusual situation. Although certainly it's possible. It is certainly possible. But the principle here is that everyone should be situated properly and positions should be filled by qualified persons. Going both directions. I should do the work for which I am suited, and work should be done by someone who's suited for it. So if the astrologers had told Maharaj Yudhisthira, hey, this Maharaj Pariket, he's a Ksatriya, but he's not a devotee, or he's a devotee, but he's not a Ksatriya, or he's neither a devotee nor a Ksatriya, then they would have had to find another successor. They're not going to do what Dhritarashtra did and put somebody in a position when they're not qualified for the position. They have to do their best to find a qualified person. And this benefits both the individual and the, the society. If I'm put in a position for which I'm not suited, I'm not going to be happy. I, I personally had a situation where I was asked to do a particular service. I was asked to do it initially just for one day. I said, all right. Then they said, oh, we're happy with how you do it. Would you do it for a week? Okay. And then it became, will you do this permanently? I said, I don't know. And as I was doing it, I can understand I'm not suited for this service. I was very uncomfortable and very unhappy. I didn't feel enlivened. I felt simply tired and discouraged. And after consulting with many senior devotees, I said, this service is not what is suitable for me. It's not working with my strengths. I'm not happy in it. 
I really need to move on and have somebody else take over. So I'm sure we've all experienced situations like that, where we're doing something in the name of cooperation and in the name of surrender and in the name of doing the needful. And maybe we can do it for a while, but after a while we find I'm really uncomfortable. It's kind of like borrowing somebody else's clothes. You you might have to do it in an emergency, but if they don't fit you, it's very uncomfortable. You know, the sleeves are always falling off your hands, or everything's sort of too tight, or it's just sort of loose or tight in the wrong places, and you're always pulling at it and tugging at it. I mean, we should basically wear clothes that we can forget about, isn't it? One should be able to wear clothes that are so comfortable and fit so well that you practically don't think about your clothes during the day. If you're constantly having to think about your clothes and always having to adjust them, or if they're just not suitable for what you're doing. You know, have you ever cooked a, a meal in clothes where you really didn't want to get a stain on them? You're wearing like some nice silk clothes and you're cooking tomato sauce without an apron. You know, then you can't concentrate on the cooking the tomato sauce because you're always worried that the tomato sauce is going to splatter onto your silks and stain them. You know, and that way we can understand, I've got to be in the position that's suitable for the body and mind that I have. And it's not really very important what specific service I do in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't really matter. I don't have to do the service that's so-called better. I don't have to do the service that's going to get them more acclaim. I don't even have to do the service that's the most needed to be done at this moment. I have to do the service that's the most suited for me. And part of doing the service that's most suited for me is to become expert. So here we find Maharaj Parikit. Maharaj Yudhishthira want wants to know, does Maharaj Prickett have the inclination? Does he have the ability? And then what is he going to do? Maharaj Yudhishthira is going to make sure that Maharaj Prickett gets the training that will bring out his nature. So want us to get the training. There's a nice quote I want to read from Srila Prabhupada in this regard. He's talking about Gurukula. This is a lecture given in Bombay, April 17, 1976, on Bhagavatam 7.12.6. 7.12.6 deals with brahmachari life. Brahmachari is getting training. And this is an exact quote. Not that because he has become Krishna conscious and Vaishnava, he is unable to do anything of this material world. No. One who is Krishna conscious, he is conscious of everything, and he knows how to deal with them. That is called daksha. Not that, quote, because I have become Krishna conscious, I have no knowledge in other things, unquote. No. Every. You must have, if not complete, to know something of everything. That is intelligence. To know something of everything and to know everything of something. That is wanted. You may be expert, a devotee. You, may, you know everything of devotional service. But you should not be callous. You should know something of everything. That is called daksha. So well, there's many places where Srila Prabhupada repeated this instruction, especially for his leaders. It was one of Srila Prabhupada's arguments against centralization and specialization. Prabhupada said, if we become centralized and specialized, and only one person is a generalist, everyone else is a specialist, and then everybody becomes very dependent on everybody else. So Prabhupada says, the devotee should know something of everything, and everything of something. To get training, everything of something, means you're getting training. 
Prabhupada also said that the goal of Gurukula was to teach values of life, this is an appropriate in the second canto, and specific training for a livelihood. So it's our duty to understand what am I good at and then to get training in that specific area where we're good at. At the same time, to know something of everything. Not that all we know how to do is our one narrow field. Of course, modern education even has this idea that when you're young, you learn something of everything, and as you get older, you specialize and learn everything of something. This concept is, we, we would say, common sense. Yeah, but somehow, sometimes in our devotee sangha, we don't use even common sense. And we say, okay, if you're just a devotee, that's all right. You can do anything. Uh, we've had so many sad stories because we filled positions with somebody just because they were chanting 16 rounds, attending Mangal Artik, following the four regulated principles, even though they had no inclination for that service and they had no training for that service, nor did we give them any training. You know, just like throwing people in the deep end of the swimming pool to teach them how to swim, even if they only had one leg. So not only do we need to make sure that we're properly situated and that we get proper training for the service that we're doing, but if we're in a position of situating other people in service, we want to make sure that we situate the right people. Again, we we find this is really a problem putting people in positions just because they're our friend. Or a real problem that comes in organizations is we put someone in a position just because they're loyal. That's called nepotism. Nepotism, you give somebody a position because they're family or they're friends as an exchange of political favors. Somebody contributes to your political campaign, so you put them in a position of power as a reward. So that's not serving the people or Krishna. That's just self-serving. So if we have the if we have the situation where we need to fill positions, temporarily or permanently, if we're filling positions as who's going to do what for the Ratyatra, or if we're filling positions for who's going to do what in an ongoing project. So we choose people who have the inclination and the training, and if they don't have the training, we provide them with the training. So this is now starting to happen in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. I haven't worked with them for a while, but there was a time that I was doing some work kind of as a consultant to the GBC Committee on Succession. So they're starting to think this way, at least in terms of succession of leadership. You know, let us find people who have the ability and let's groom them. Let's train them. Let's have a system for training them. So both sides of this equation, that I should do what I'm best at, and I should get training to bring out what I'm best at, and I should engage people according to what they are best at, and I should also give them the requisite training for their position. This is not simply a material consideration. Bhaktivinoda Thakur in his Gita Mala, when he is speaking about realizing himself as a gopi maidservant. He writes a wonderful verse. Um, I'm paraphrasing it. But he writes a wonderful verse that whatever service that he's given to do, no matter how small, he does it with great care and expertise. And one of my favorite letters is one of Srila Prabhupada wrote to Jai Pitaka Swami, 
saying that surrender is whatever service I'm doing, it doesn't matter what the service is, how small it is, how big it is, that, that I do it with great care. That's surrender. So I was just recently, one of my friends sent me a, an email that I had sent to this person in 2006 from a conversation I had with a, one of our sannyasis who had said to me, one can think of whatever service one's doing is part of one's eternal service to Krishna. You know, we may think it's a very elevated thing. We chant, Nukunjayuno rati keli sirai yayali We may think, oh, that's very elevated. The guru is engaged in doing service to Radha and Krishna in their kunjas. But if we have a deity in our home or a picture, we have an altar in our home, then our whole home is the residence of the Supreme Lord. And if we meditate like that, when I'm cleaning my home, I'm, it's like I'm decorating Krishna's palace or Mahaprabhu's palace or Radha and Krishna's kunjas. When I'm cooking, I'm assisting Srimati Radharani. I'm assisting Srila Prabhupada. Or Jagannanda Pandit, or Sarvabhama Bhattacharya, in cooking for Mahaprabhu, or cooking for Radha and Krishna, and whatever I'm doing, whether I'm driving a car, whether I'm bathing, whatever I'm doing, I can do it in the mood that I'm doing this for Krishna, and therefore I want it to be done expertly. I want it to be done expertly. Not that, oh, I'm doing something now, it's all material. You know, people ask all the time, how can I balance my material and spiritual life? What material life? What material life? We're not supposed to have any material life. If I'm practically engaged according to my propensities, and I get training how to do my service nicely, and I'm doing my service nicely, that is spiritual doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's an office job. It doesn't matter if it's working in a hospital. It doesn't matter if it's whatever it is. It doesn't matter. This is the service given to me by my guru. This is the service given to me by Krishna. Let me become expert. So this is Maharaj Yudhisthira's concern. And not only does Maharaj Yudhisthira want to do his service expertly, he's doing his best to make sure that it will go on after he leaves that it will continue. Obviously, as I say, we can't control that, and periodically things become disordered. But that should be our mood. That is to be the level of expertise. I am doing it expertly now. I am getting whatever training I need. I am training others insofar as what they need. As my service to Krishna. And I'm meditating like that. How this is my service to Krishna. And I know that I am not indispensable. I am not important. I mean, I'm important in that Krishna loves me, but I'm not really very important. I have a brief flash of time on this planet. And therefore, if I'm doing some service that requires to be continued, you know, here Marjudisti was running all of Jambudweep, <laughs> then it is also part of being expert to train up successors and to have my own plans for retirement. 
So what a wonderful society. Uh, right now we can only read about such a society in a book and imagine what it must be like because the society in which we live in is full of, uh, what is this, party and group selfishness, corruption, intrigue, and hypocrisy on every level, among the shudras, the vaishas, the ksatriyas, the brahmanas. Most people are hardly even shudras. So when we read these descriptions, it's almost like a, a fantasy. It's almost like science fiction or something like that. Uh, but at least we can try within our own little sphere of activities to embody these same principles. So I hope you could hear me. I, I know I wasn't able to talk very loud. I, I apologize. I'm, I'm really uh, not doing so well with my throat. So we can have a few minutes, about you know, 8.30, 10 minutes, if there's questions or comments. Back in the, I guess in the 70s and maybe the early 80s, we were enthusiastic thinking that one of the things we could do to help our society grow was to see our future generation, the next generation, become really strong, powerful devotees. But it seemed like that never really happened. In spite of all the good attempts and sincerity of the parents and chanting uh, 50 rounds before having children, it doesn't seem like very many of the second generation devotees are even interested in chanting 16 rounds. They may be favorable towards the movement, but it doesn't seem like that next that next generation came, which sort of ties in with our verse. It, you know, it, uh, Yudhishthir was so concerned that, that how would uh, the next generation, what their qualities be, so that so that he could retire? Seems like we haven't done too well. But what are your thoughts? I agree. What I mean, if you really want to know my thoughts, I gave a class in Mayapur in February of this year, and it's up on Dandavats. Nearly 10,000 people have read the transcript, and uh, I would suggest that you could peruse it. There's, it's also um, you can on Mayapur.tv. You can see the video of it. I just see that as a society. I'm trying to be really brief with this because I could talk about it for probably a year or two. But as a society, we really did not understand the importance of the children of the movement. And I attribute this primarily to the fact that most of us who started who started ISKCON were very young. You know, it was rare to find somebody over 30. That was unusual. Most of us were somewhere between, you know, 16 and 26. And we had cut off our relationships with our material elders, more or less. The only elder in ISKCON was Srila Prabhupada, from any perspective. Age, experience, Krishna consciousness. We didn't know anything. And so many members had been hippies, although hippies didn't call themselves hippies where they had dropped out of school and were just taking drugs and hadn't even prepared for a livelihood. I mean, the number of devotees in the early days who were really trained for a livelihood and had any kind of 
expertise in something was also very small. You know, we'd get all excited if somebody joined who had a college degree in, in some area. What to speak of an advanced degree and what to speak of already an established career in something. You know, that was that was the exception rather than the rule. Most of us either were in the middle of our undergraduate studies or had dropped out of studies and were living not exactly a very materially responsible life. And we didn't have anyone to guide us. So I see that as the root of a, of a lot of the difficulties that happened in ISKCON and the, the dealing with the children was certainly one of them. We had the mentality that the children were going to automatically be great devotees, which Maharaj Yudhisthira did not have that mentality. Maharaj Yudhisthira wanted to know if the child had the inclination, and then he was going to arrange for proper training. And if we look in this verse, Prabhupada says, Great saintly kings were trained up. They were trained. So we didn't take this training seriously. Also, I see that we grossly misunderstood Srila Prabhupada's instructions. You know, when Prabhupada taught, would talk about balancing the material and spiritual education, for example, in Isha Upanishad, he was always emphasizing the spiritual. Now, we have to remember Srila Prabhupada was coming from India, and even today, if you go to India, you find this inordinate emphasis on material education. And Prabhupada was running into this in India when he asked people to give him children to be trained as brahmanas. People said, well, how will that be useful in making money? This is a really serious problem that the Indian parents, if you really want to get a laugh, go to YouTube and, YouTube and do a search for Indian parents. So the Indian parents, they want their children to be getting master's degrees at age seven. And this is not an exaggeration. I wish it were an exaggeration. I had direct experience of this. I had direct experience with, an Indi with Indian parents coming to me and saying, my seven-year-old child failed his spelling test. How will he get a master's degree? I have to put him in a school that has more academic uh, emphasis. So that was the culture Srila Prabhupada was coming from. And so Srila Prabhupada really emphasized the spiritual side of education. Unfortunately, the people to whom Srila Prabhupada was speaking, his young disciples, had already in many cases rejected material education completely. And so when Prabhupada emphasized the spiritual education, instead of coming up with something balanced, we came up with something that was very unbalanced. So what I saw is that there was a mentality that the children are automatically pure devotees and they don't need to be trained as devotees. There's no need to train them in, in devotion. And material training is not important. So spiritual training is not important and material training is not important. Automatically, they would just be devotees. That was the mood. And unfortunately, with that mood, the leaders at the time, and, and I'm afraid to a large extent we really have to put it on the leaders at the time, because at that time in ISKCON, almost everybody was dependent on the leadership structure. We were living in ashrams, or we were living in temple-owned housing. We were basically pooling our economic resources as if we were communists, all the, as if we, or as if we were brahmacharis in, in a brahmachari children. We were turning over our income to the leaders who then redistributed it according to need. 
So we were economically dependent, we were socially dependent, and I'd say we were spiritually dependent in the sense that if you moved out of a temple and moved away from a community, you would be socially ostracized, and your ability to get sadhu sangha and advance would be very small. So if you wanted to be a devotee, you really had to put yourself in a dependent position upon the leadership, and therefore it would be very difficult for the parents to get together and say, wait a minute, you know, what kind of education are our kids getting? Also, things were set up so that the parents were very strongly excluded. Ravinda Suprabhu talks about how when his daughter went to the Dallas Gurukula, they were allowed to visit her only on Janmashtami for half a day. I think they were allowed to call one day a month. I mean, one, we were literally cut off from our children. And again, what was the option? You know, there was no idea of homeschooling. And if you pulled your kids out of Gurukul and put them in a non-devotee school, you would have been socially ostracized, you would have been socially shunned by the other devotees. So it was very difficult for the parents to even know what was going on in the schools, what to speak of demand that there was any high quality of training, material or spiritual. And of course the leaders assured us that there was high quality of training, but there wasn't. They were basically putting people in charge of the schools who were useless, both materially and spiritually instead of putting the most highly qualified persons there. The most highly qualified persons were put in other positions. And the results were, as we know, very horrible. The results were that the children did not receive an adequate material education, that their spiritual so-called education was done in a very abusive way, so that many of those children ended up having heavy negative emotional experiences connected with their spiritual training. When all this became public in the late 80s and early 90s, when it started becoming obvious to the devotees in general that the children had not received a good material education uh, and nor had they gotten proper spiritual training, in fact they'd gotten uh, abused in the name of Krishna consciousness, which is the opposite of good spiritual training. And you have to remember at that time in ISKCON also, we had the whole zonal guru acharya system falling down around our ears left and right. So we had our two main hopes for succession were being devastated. The succession of gurus in the parampara, the, the diksha succession, and the uh, children's succession. Both of those were our, our hopes. You know, when Prabhupada first left, we were growing by leaps and bounds. But those two means of carrying on our movement, we found both of them to be very seriously flawed, not just slightly flawed. It wasn't just like there were a few pockmarks on the moon, but the thing was just rotten to the core. And at that time, of course, we had many people who left and many people who uh, didn't leave Krishna consciousness but who became less active in the organization. And people responded to these revelations that they couldn't necessarily trust their leaders who'd established the schools and that the schools had failed to produce the sort of children that we had hoped for. Not only that, but they'd actually produced in many cases the opposite because of so much mistreatment and neglect. So people then, uh, they lost their faith in that sort of system. And the unfortunate consequence is that the vast majority of our children then started to be trained in the materialistic schools. There had been a lot of propaganda made by certain leaders, and I would go so far as to say that it was intentional propaganda against parents teaching their children at home. And the reason why I say it's intentional is that 
in the quotes that were distributed, uh, what Srila Prabhupada said on Gurukula, there were sentences removed from the middle of quotes. So when Prabhupada was asked about homeschooling, uh, you know, his answer, his answer that encouraged it was removed. When Prabhupada was asked about studying literature, his answer uh, saying that we should study recognized non-devotee literature was removed. And these things were removed from the middle of conversations. So I don't know who was responsible, and I don't think it matters anymore, but there was definitely a deliberate attempt on the part of at least one person uh, to skew Prabhupada's teachings on education. So when the Gurukulas were shown to be uh, really horrible, then people didn't turn to homeschooling. They didn't create their own schools. They didn't create their own solutions because they had been indoctrinated that such was Maya. And instead they just sent their kids to the non-devotee schools. So that happened, you know, the late 80s or the 90s. How many years ago is that? Early 90s. You know, we're talking 20 years ago. So the children that we're seeing now come to maturity were most likely not trained in Krishna consciousness. Only a tiny, tiny fraction of those children have been properly trained in Krishna consciousness. I mean, even just the most basic things. So we still haven't really done it. You know, it's. I'd say that there are a lot of people now who are trying. There's Aruda, who is now training hundreds and hundreds of devotees how to homeschool according to Srila Prabhupada's books. We have our beginning attempt to produce curriculum that's all based according to Srila Prabhupada's books. But it's it's really only beginning, and I have not seen that there's a groundswell of interest. I mean, when I when Krishna gave me that verse in Mayapur. Just, you know, by divine arrangement. I was asked to speak on a particular day. I look at the verse for that day, and Prabhupada says, Therefore, the leaders of the Krishna consciousness movement should start educational institutions to train young children from the age of five all over the world. I may not be getting the words exactly right. Thus, the face of the world will change automatically. Uh, that was the purport I was given to speak upon. And although it was during the GBC meeting, most of the GBCs were not in attendance because they start their meetings at six o'clock in the morning. So there were certainly some leaders there. And it, the transcript of my talk became the most commented article in the history of, of the Dundavat site. But 80-90% of the comments were whether or not a woman should be giving class in Mayapur rather than should we take care of our children. And how ironic that many of the people opposed to my giving class were women who promote the fact that women should be raising children nicely. And yet they ignored the fact that it was about raising our children. I have, I've just not seen a response among the devotees in general, even to that class, that, okay, let's get our schools together. Or, you know, we published this Learn to Read project that's all based on Srila Prabhupada's books and is at the top professional standards for teaching reading. And it's been out now for about a year. Yeah, one year, a little over a year, a few weeks over a year. And I expected that once that was produced that a lot of people would come forward and say, wow, we can actually do a materially professional quality program that's entirely based on Srila Prabhupada's books to teach our children. Wow, you know, let me give you $10 million to produce some more. But that hasn't happened at all. You know, I've had some people come forward and say, can we be distributors of your books so we can make some money by selling them? Uh, although it's interesting that myself, I haven't made a penny by selling them, nor was that my intention. But uh, I haven't had anybody, I haven't had one single person come forward and say, wow, let's do some more of this and I'm willing, willing to help. I've had people come forward and say, do you have any more of this? But I haven't had anyone come forward asking to help. And 
I must admit that I've been quite discouraged by that. So I, I don't really know what the solution is. I see that at the present time, we really have not established any sort of system for training our children in Krishna consciousness. We have individual schools that are trying to do this and that, but we do not have any kind of international system. We do not even have an agreed-upon official philosophy of education based on Srila Prabhupada's books. Uh, there is talk in Radhadesh of having a teacher training program, which hopefully would be based on a philosophy of education. So some people are talking about these things. Uh, what I see the solution, we'd have to have what Srila Prabhupada wanted, a real ministry of education, where we first of all figured out what in the world is our philosophy of education. Right now we fight about it, but we really haven't come to any kind of definitive conclusion. Where we then train teachers according to that philosophies, where we develop curriculum according to that philosophy, and then we build schools according to that philosophy. Uh, if I do find enthusiasm, I find enthusiasm to build schools. And I'll say, how can you build a school before you know what the foundation is? And, you know, I, I, again, I don't find much response in that respect. So, Rishila Prabhupada called Gurukul our most important project. And as far as I can understand, in the light of today's purport, the two main items of succession, who are going to be the Diksha and Shiksha Gurus, and how are the children going to be trained, are the most important questions in terms of a devotional society. They may not be the most important questions as far as me as an individual and what I do in the next five minutes and, and what I do in the next hour, but they're the most important questions in terms of the society. And I see that neither of those questions are being asked very much. Uh, if they are being asked and they are being discussed, it tends to be in a very political, blaming, um, name-calling, mud-slinging way. That the gurus are this, the gurus are that, or this school is bogus, or this... And that, I see it mostly in that mood. And uh, only a small number of people who are working in a very thoughtful, careful, respectful way to figure out how we're going to have these two parts of our these two essential parts of our succession continue. So I'm sorry I can't say much in this regard that's very hopeful. I would say that I'm very happy that despite how bad the situation is, that most of the children raised by devotees are favorable and that some of them are strict sadhikas and some of them are amazing. So we do have some children of devotees second generation, now we're coming into third generation, who are extraordinary. And I, I remember going, I'm not going to say the name, but I remember going to one Bhagavatam class given by one of these second generation devotees. It was interesting, it was during a meeting of ISKCON scholars. And for this devotee's class, hardly anybody was in attendance at the Bhagavatam class, and nobody was recording it. Although, you know, when the big GBCs and sannyasis would speak, everybody was recording in there. And this devotee gave, I would say, the most extraordinary Bhagavatam class I've ever heard. You know, we hear that Krishna is in the Bhagavatam, and I will say that Krishna manifested in the pages of the Bhagavatam when this devotee was speaking. It actually felt that Krishna was walking in the room and, and, and coming out through him. And he's such an extraordinary devotee on every level on the level of just gentlemanly behavior, Shastric knowledge, devotion to Krishna, on, on every every possible level. 
So there are such persons. They are much uh, smaller in percentage than we had hoped for. But we didn't do what was necessary to get them. You know, it's not that you hope for a good cake, and so you just kind of blindly throw a bunch of things in a bowl and mix it up and, and blindly push some random temperature on your oven, and you're going to be likely to come up with anything that's palatable. So, again, I'm sorry I went on for a while. This is, you know, you're asking on my particular area of service, so it's hard for me to speak for <laughs> less than 15 minutes on it. Uh, yeah, you can make a comment. I can stay on for another five, ten minutes. What? I can stay on another five, ten minutes. I'm sorry, I can't talk very loudly. I really have a bad cold. No. Oh, yeah. No, you don't need to talk, but some things where you hear them on tape, they haven't been you know, deleted, where, like, probably it'll say, yeah, the women, the girls can just learn sewing, like at the Varnashram College in tapes, where Queen Hernanda is very enthusiastically saying, yes, we want to do this right away, although here it is 37 years later, and he hasn't done anything, but right away you know you hear that over and over in your head if you heard those and probably is saying yeah the women could the girls can learn cooking and and if i guarantee i'll get them a husband if they are simply chased and they learn how to cook so people have taken advantage of that obviously and they, they just top that line so what do you say to people uh who propose that then another comment would be wait wait wait, wait one at a time so somehow you got Prabhupada's quotes taken just one quote here, one quote there without looking at anything. Whether it was the girls should just be trained to cook and sew and be chaste and faithful or the parents can visit Dallas once a year. So what I see is you have to take what everything Prabhupada said and put it together. Prabhupada said the girls can just be trained to cook and sew but they can also become preachers. He said that also. When he saw Ravindra's daughter I don't remember how old she was, quite young. And he saw her wearing a lot of bangles. And he said, oh, look at all those bangles. Make sure you marry her to Exetria. Then she started, 
Then she started reciting Bhagavad Gita verses. And Prabhupada said, no, marry her to a Brahmana. There's also a, a letter where Srila Prabhupada says that Malati's daughter, Sarasvati, should get training in Sanskrit so that she can become a scholar like Jiva Goswami and astound the whole world with her Sanskrit scholarship. So, what I understand about Prabhupada's instructions about training girls is you better make sure that they know domestic things because most people are going to marry. And Prabhupada definitely wanted all the girls to marry. And a woman who can't function in her domestic sphere is not going to be very happy, nor is her husband going to be very happy. Generally. Generally. I know of an exception. I know of a devotee couple where the woman told me she has never cooked a meal in her life. And he runs a devotee restaurant. They go and eat there. She's an incredible businesswoman. And she is one of the people who's supporting my god how many projects does she support all over the world she supports four or five major preaching projects I'm talking about major so I know that just in one year for one festival tour she put up $70,000 she makes up the shortfall on her husband's prasadam restaurant which is what's paying the rent money to the temple and maintaining the local temple so there are some exceptions, and she's never cooked in her life. You know, a very nice marriage, two wonderful children. Uh, one of her children at least is initiated, or maybe second initiated. But generally speaking, a woman should know how to cook and sew and clean and etc. Now, does that mean that that's all she's going to do? If that's all she's going to do, then she's like a domestic servant. So women also have varna and therefore they should also be trained. We find Prabhupada talks about the shudras, where the husband, uh, the woman is spinning the, the thread, the husband is weaving the cloth. John Dropadi, who was helping her husbands run the government. The Brahmin women were essential for sacrifices. Krishna said to the wives of the Brahmins, if you don't go home, your husband can't perform the sacrifices. A Brahmin is not allowed to perform a sacrifice without his wife. She, she's part of doing the sacrifice. So I see Prabhupada was talking about, okay, you've got to have this baseline stuff there for the women. You know, otherwise they're going to be miserable. I mean, I know one, another family where the woman doesn't know how to cook, and so they're always having to buy garbage food. She doesn't know how to cook. Always having to buy prepared stuff. You know, the husband's not very happy. You're a woman who doesn't know how to clean. It used to be we understood this. All the girls took home ec and all the boys took shop. You know, it's nice to... The other day our washing machine here broke. I mean, my son knew how to fix it. Didn't have to call somebody in and pay $500 to fix it. So that's baseline. You have to take, you know, Prabhupada's instructions in total. So as far as parents visiting, I mean, when Prajumna started teaching his own son, and Jyotirmai asked about it, Prabhupada said, yes, why not? He can teach his own son. He can also start teaching others and start his own little school. You know, there's, we have several different models of the ideal school. We have the model of the school where Krishna and Balaram went, where they went away from their parents and they lived with Sandipani Muni. We have the example of Mahaprabhu who was running a school. He went to a school of Gangadas Pandit, which was a day school, and Mahaprabhu was also running a day school. 
It's not clear whether the Pandavas were attending a day school or an ashram school. It's also interesting that the curriculum was very different. So Krishna and Balaram were learning how to make flower airplanes, but Mahaprabhu, we never hear about him learning or teaching the making of flower airplanes. So there was variety. And if one takes, you know, just one quote from Srila Prabhupada and ignores all the other ones, that's, uh, how do we say, a little self-serving. You know, I have a point that I want to make, so I take the quotes that support my position. Then as far as uh, why did Srila Prabhupada give responsibility to various people, well, that's what he had to work with, A. <laughs> you know, that was, what, that was who Krishna sent him. And as far as was Prabhupada a little naive, uh, Srila Prabhupada himself would say, in regard to many different things, that he had had higher expectations and was disappointed. He said that in regard to people staying married without divorcing, I mean, he said that with regard to people keeping their sannyas, he said that with regard to people being steady in management, he said that with regard to people keeping their vows. So I I don't think that that's any sort of speculation that Srila Prabhupada had higher expectations of the people that he worked with than they were able to fulfill. You know, Prabhupada was coming from a very different culture. So, yeah, he had some assumptions about the people he was working with and their level of, of training and expertise. One thing is interesting, when that guy Sharma um, to the temple retired he, and he started running the Gurukul in Vrindavan, he was not even really a Vaishnava. I remember he wouldn't even bow. We would stand in front of the deities when the deities would open in Krishna Balaramandir. He would just stand there, you know. And But Prabhupada put him... Is anyone still there? Yeah, yeah. Because he had material expertise. Right. So, so that counts for some interesting you know, interesting thing that Prabhupada would do. Yeah, and, and you see that when Srila Prabhupada asked people to teach, he was at like Hayagriva, who was a college professor. You know, so and, and you have to remember that as far as a lot of these weird perversions, Srila Prabhupada was in many senses very innocent about things like that. It wasn't something that he had encountered in his in his life at all. I mean, if you read in the Shastra, you don't really read about things like that. So it wasn't something that one would expect. I mean, even we didn't expect things like that. It's, it's something like, you know that cannibalism exists, but it never crosses your mind that any of the people you're interacting with might be secret cannibals. It's just not even on your radar. You know, you know that cannibalism exists. You know that. But it, it's just it's just not there. You don't think about it. And then, um, as far as the devotee themselves, like Bhaktivedanta Thakur, when he went to the school, this Frenchman was teaching. That was another thing. Now, this was at Bengali in his autobiography. He mentions that the, Beng- the Bengali teacher was so brutal that his younger brother, who was four, Haridas, Haridas, he wanted to kill the teacher while he was taking a nap. He had a machete. And... and and little Kateranath was six or something, his brother was four, he saw him with the machete that he was going to try to cut his throat. So he grabbed it and threw it in the bushes, and the teacher woke up and saw what happened, and he just left because he thought, well, these kids want to kill me. <laughs> but he was so brutal, I'm just saying, and you know, just the idea that Bakhtinov, his siblings all died, I think one sister did live till 20, and the two of them died before he was born. He was the only one to really survive. And you know, the whole thing with the, the school, I'm sure there were, very brutal times, so it's kind of like should the kids always? You, maybe he didn't get you know 
in principle, I would in principle I would agree. In dealing with individuals, one has to deal individually. And when dealing with individuals, one has to deal individually. One must deal, should deal with empathy and compassion. Because a lot of karma is simply to develop empathy and compassion. And if I don't have empathy for somebody else's situation, I may have to personally experience it in another life. So have empathy. But I think on, on principle, yes. On principle, yes. There's definitely, we need to forget our past, whatever it may be, whatever, you know, all of us have been through so much stuff in our life. I haven't met anybody who can say they never went through any kind of garbage in their life. And and go on and say, okay, well, what am I going to do? Not be a victim. However, I don't, I don't understand that you can necessarily go to other people and demand that of them. It's something that I can demand of myself. And it's something that I can preach as a principle. And then people need to know how to move on. It's not so easy moving on. And it may take it may take five, ten, twenty years before one really learns to deal with things like this. One really learns how to forgive. I mean, it's it's not so easy. I can think of people I know who went through horrific abuse, you know, had nothing to do with Krishna consciousness, just they grew up in some situation where they were horribly abused by their parents or their step parents or whatever, sexually, physically, psychologically. And sometimes if you say to these people, well, you need to forgive, they'll become angry. And then maybe, you know, three, four years later, they'll write you a letter and say, hey, you know, I think I'm ready to forgive now. Help me to do it. So that may be the case. I know even in my own life, it sometimes has taken me many years to be able to deal with and let go of this or that thing that somebody did to me. And in fact, Prabhu, really, one thing that I understood just a few years ago is that why, why are we taking birth again and again and again? What, what does this really mean? <laughs> you know, a, a lot of the reason for our taking birth again and again is we want to fix things and we want to finish things. We want to have justice. We want to have closure. And this person did this to me and I want to get back at them. Or I did something wrong and I want to pay my debt. You know, we're, we're very much in this mode of justice. The spiritual world is not a world of justice and laws. It's a world of mercy and love. And to go from here to there requires letting go of a lot of that stuff. You know, the Kshatriyas are supposed to be the enforcers of justice in this world on Krishna's behalf. So there's a place for it. We're not saying there shouldn't be justice in this world. But having the mentality that one is attached to that thinking I'm a victim and thinking this is the perpetrator. Dharma the Bull says, if you name anyone as the perpetrator, you're equally guilty. That's an amazing concept. It's really an amazing concept. It's very, very deep. And to go from here to there, to go from letting go, someone did this to me, they did that to me, but no one's the perpetrator. And I did this and I did that. But I don't have to pay my debts. I don't have to pay back Duryodhana for making me as the king of Anga and fight with him against the Pandavas. I don't have to pay back that debt. I can just surrender to Krishna. And he'll take care of whatever debts I have. So I don't have to force anyone to pay their debts, their karmic debts back to me, nor do I have to pay my karmic debts to anyone. I think of it like you're playing a game of Monopoly. So I'll play money. It's all illusory debts. And what you can't do, you can't stay in the game and, and cheat. 
You're not allowed to do that. But you can quit the game. You we really are allowed to quit the game. So sometimes people think, well, all right, I'll just won't have anybody owe me money and I won't owe anybody money, but I'll still play the game. Oh no, can't do that. That doesn't work. But you can quit the game. You can say this is an illusion. It's just a bunch of play money. It doesn't really mean anything. I'm just going to surrender to Krishna and I'm going to let go of anybody I owe them, they owe me, it's gone. There's no more karma. We can choose that. Karmadi nirdhati kintu chabakti bhajam. But I will tell you that for most of us, getting from where we are right now to that point where we can really let go, happily let go without fear, master jaha. For most of us, that's gradual. And it's not something that you can force on somebody else by beating them over the head with a mallet. So let us first do that in our own lives. Let us first really, on a deep, deep level, forgive and let go of anybody who harmed us in any way, intentionally or unintentionally. Let us let go of using other people's behaviors as excuses for our own shortcomings. Let us take full responsibility for who I am and what I'm doing. Let me let go of my feeling that I have to fix this and fix that and fix this relationship and pay back this this thing and have closure on this thing because I did this thing wrong and let us let go of all of that and let us find actual freedom that's freedom and then let me treat all those who are uh, inferior to me with compassion, all those who are equal to me with friendship and all those who are superior to me with joy let me do that first then once I've done that and once I've actually experienced the freedom of doing that on a very deep level, then I can go and say something to somebody else with compassion and with recognition that most people are going to do that gradually. It's a very scary process. So it's now 9 o'clock. Thank you for tolerating my speaking in a soft voice. Um, I'm glad Krishna gave me the ability to speak at all. All glories to Maharaj, you just dear Maharaj Prickett and the principle of succession. All glories to you. Thank you.